Section 8 of Monsieur Lecoq, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nadine Cardboulet. Monsieur Lecoq by Emile Gaboriau, Part 1, Section 8. Day was breaking, cold, cheerless, and gloomy, when Lecoq and his colleague concluded their investigation. There was not an inch of space that had not been explored, carefully examined and studied, one might almost say, with a magnifying glass. There now only remained to draw up the report. The younger man seated himself at the table, and, with the view of making his recital as intelligible as possible, he began by sketching a plan of the scene of the murder. It will be seen that in the memoranda appended to this explanatory diagram, Lecoq had not once written his own name. In noting the things that he had imagined or discovered, he referred to himself simply as one of the police. This was not so much modesty as calculation. By hiding oneself on well-chosen occasions, one gains greater notoriety when one emerges from the shade. It was also through cunning that he gave Gevrol such a prominent position. These tactics, rather subtle, perhaps, but after all perfectly fair, could not fail to call attention to the man who had shown himself so efficient when the efforts of his chief had been merely confined to breaking open the door. The document Lecoq drew up was not a procès verbal, a formal act reserved for the officers of judiciary police. It was a simple report that would be admitted under the title of an inquiry, and yet the young detective composed it with quite as much care as a general would have displayed in drawing up the bulletin of his first victory. While Lecoq was drawing and writing, Father Absinthe leaned over his shoulder to watch him. The plan amazed that worthy man. He had seen a great deal but he had always supposed that it was necessary to be an engineer, an architect, or, at least, a carpenter, to execute such work. Not at all. With a tape-line with which to take some measurements, and a bit of board in place of a rule, his inexperienced colleague had soon accomplished the miracle. Father Absinthe's respect for Lecoq was thereby greatly augmented. It is true that the worthy veteran had not noticed the explosion of the young police agent's vanity, nor his return to his former modest demeanour. He had not observed his alarm, nor his perplexity, nor his lack of penetration. After a few moments, Father Absinthe ceased watching his companion. He felt weary after the labours of the night, his head was burning, and he shivered and his knees trembled. Perhaps, though he was by no means sensitive, he felt the influence of the horrors that surrounded him, and which seemed more sinister than ever in the bleak light of morning. He began to ferret in the cupboards, and at last succeeded in discovering, oh, marvellous fortune, a bottle of brandy, three parts full. He hesitated for an instant, then he poured out a glass, and drained it at a single draught. "'Will you have some?' he inquired of his companion. It is not a very famous brand, to be sure, but it is just as good. It makes one's blood circulate and enlivens one. 
Lecoq refused. He did not need to be enlivened. All his faculties were hard at work. He intended that, after a single perusal of his report, the investigating magistrate should say, Let the officer who drew up this document be sent for. It must be remembered that Lecoq's future depended upon such an order. Accordingly, he took particular care to be brief, clear, and concise, to plainly indicate how his suspicions on the subject of the murder had been aroused, how they had increased, and how they had been confirmed. He explained by what series of deductions he had succeeded in establishing a theory which, if it was not the truth, was at least plausible enough to serve as the basis for further investigation. Then he enumerated the articles of conviction ranged on the table before him. There were the flakes of brown wool collected upon the plank, the valuable earring, the models of the different footprints in the garden, and the widow Chupin's apron, with its pockets turned inside out. There was also the murderer's revolver, with two barrels discharged and three still loaded. This weapon, although not of an ornamental character, was still a specimen of highly finished workmanship. It bore the name of one Stevens, 14 Skinner Street, a well-known London gunsmith. Lecoq felt convinced that by examining the bodies of the victims he would obtain other and perhaps very valuable information, but he did not dare venture upon such a course. Besides his own inexperience in such a matter, there was Gevrol to be thought of, and the inspector, furious at his own mistake, would not fail to declare that, by changing the attitude of the bodies, Lecoq had rendered a satisfactory examination by the physicians impossible. The young detective accordingly tried to console himself for his forced inaction in this respect, and he was re-reading his report, modifying a few expressions, when Father Absinthe, who was standing upon the threshold of the outer door, called to him. "'Is there anything new?' asked Lecoq. "'Yes,' was the reply. "'Here come Gevrol and two of our comrades, with the commissary of police, and two other gentlemen.' It was, indeed, the commissary who was approaching, interested but not disturbed by this triple murder which was sure to make his arrondissement the subject of Parisian conversation during the next few days. Why, indeed, should he be troubled about it? For Gevrol, whose opinion in such matters might be regarded as an authority, had taken care to reassure him when he went to arouse him from his slumbers. It was only a fight between some old offenders, former jailbirds, habitués of the Poivrière, he had said, adding sententiously, if all these ruffians would kill one another, we might have some little peace. He added that as the murderer had been arrested and placed in confinement, there was nothing urgent about the case. Accordingly, the commissary thought there was no harm in taking another nap and waiting until morning before beginning the inquiry. He had seen the murderer, reported the case to the prefecture, and now he was coming, leisurely enough, accompanied by two physicians, appointed by the authorities to draw up a medico-legal report in all such cases. The party also comprised a sergeant-major of the 53rd Regiment of Infantry of the Line, who had been summoned by the commissary to identify, if possible, 
the murdered man who wore a uniform, for if one might believe the number engraved upon the buttons of his overcoat, he belonged to the 53rd Regiment, now stationed at the neighboring fort. As the party approached, it was evident that Inspector Gevrol was even less disturbed than the commissary. He whistled as he walked along, flourishing his cane, which never left his hand, and already laughing in his sleeve over the discomfiture of the presumptuous fool who had desired to remain to glean where he, the experienced and skilful officer, had perceived nothing. As soon as he was within speaking distance, the inspector called to Father Absinthe, who, after warning Lecoq, remained on the threshold, leaning against the doorpost, puffing his pipe as immovable as a sphinx. "'Ah, well, old man,' cried Gevrol, "'have you any great melodrama, very dark and very mysterious, to relate to us?' "'I have nothing to relate myself,' replied the old detective, without even drawing his pipe from his lips. "'I am too stupid. That is perfectly understood. But Monsieur Lecoq will tell you something that will astonish you.' The prefix, Monsieur, which the old police agent used in speaking of his colleague, displeased Gevrol so much that he pretended not to understand. "'Who are you speaking of?' he asked abruptly. "'Of my colleague, of course, who is now busy finishing his report. Of Monsieur Lecoq.' Quite unintentionally, the worthy fellow had certainly become the young police agent's godfather. From that day forward, for his enemies as well as for his friends, he was, and he remained, Monsieur Lecoq. Ha, ha, said the inspector, whose hearing was evidently impaired. Ha, he has discovered the pot of roses which others did not send, General. By this remark, Father Absinthe made an enemy of his superior officer. But he cared little for that. Lecoq had become his deity, and no matter what the future might reserve, the old veteran had resolved to follow his young colleague's fortunes. "'We'll see about that,' murmured the inspector, mentally resolving to have an eye on this youth whom success might transform into a rival. He said no more for the little party which he preceded had now overtaken him, and he stood aside to make way for the commissary of police. This commissary was far from being a novice. He had served for many years, and yet he could not repress a gesture of horror as he entered the Poivriere. The sergeant-major of the 53rd, who followed him, an old soldier, decorated and medalled, who had smelt powder many scores of times, was still more overcome. He grew as pale as the corpses lying on the ground, and was obliged to lean against the wall for support. The two physicians alone retained their stoical indifference. Lecoq had risen, his report in his hand. He bowed, and assuming a respectful attitude, was waiting to be questioned. "'You must have passed a frightful night,' said the commissary kindly and quite unnecessarily, since any investigation was superfluous. I think, however, replied the young police agent, having recourse to all his diplomacy, that my time has not been entirely lost. I have acted according to the instructions of my superior officer, I have searched the premises thoroughly, and I have ascertained many things. I have, for example, acquired the certainty that the murderer had a friend, 
possibly an accomplice, of whom I can give quite a close description. He must have been of middle age, and wore, if I am not mistaken, a soft cap and a brown woolen overcoat. As for his boots, Zounds! exclaimed Gevrol, and I... He stopped short, like a man whose impulse had exceeded his discretion, and who would have gladly recalled his words. And you? inquired the commissary. Pray, what do you mean? The inspector had gone too far to draw back, and, unwillingly, was now obliged to act as his own executioner. I was about to mention, he said, that this morning, an hour or so ago, while I was waiting for you, sir, before the station-house, at the Barrière d'Italie, where the murderer is confined, I noticed close by an individual whose appearance was not unlike that of the man described by Lecoq. This man seemed to be very intoxicated, for he reeled and staggered against the walls. He tried to cross the street, but fell down in the middle of it, in such a position that he would inevitably have been crushed by the first passing vehicle. Lecoq turned away his head. He did not wish them to read in his eyes how perfectly he understood the whole game. Seeing this, pursued Gevrol, I called two men and asked them to aid me in raising the poor devil. We went up to him. He had apparently fallen asleep. We shook him. We made him sit up. We told him that he could not remain there but he immediately flew into a furious rage. He swore at us, threatened us, and began fighting us. And on my word, we had to take him to the station-house and leave him there to recover from the effects of his drunken debauch. "'Did you shut him up in the same cell with the murderer?' inquired Lecoq. "'Naturally. You know very well that there are only two cages in the station-house at the barrière, one for men and the other for women. Consequently—' The commissary seemed thoughtful. "'Ah, that's very unfortunate,' he stammered. "'And there is no remedy.' "'Excuse me, there is one,' observed Gevrol. "'I can send one of my men to the station-house with an order to detain the drunken man.' Lecoq interposed with a gesture. "'Trouble lost,' he said coldly. "'If this individual is an accomplice, he has got sober by now, rest assured of that, and is already far away.' "'Then what is to be done?' asked the inspector, with an ironical air. "'May one be permitted to ask the advice of Monsieur Lecoq?' "'I think chance offered us a splendid opportunity, and we did not know how to seize it, and that the best thing we can do now is to give over mourning, and prepare to profit by the next opportunity that presents itself.' Gevrol was, however, determined to send one of his men to the station-house.' and it was not until the messenger had started that Lecoq commenced the reading of his report. He read it rapidly, refraining as much as possible from placing the decisive proofs in strong relief, reserving these for his own benefit. But so strong was the logic of his deductions that he was frequently interrupted by approving remarks from the commissary and the two physicians. Gevrol, who alone represented the opposition, shrugged his shoulders till they were well-nigh dislocated, and grew literally green with jealousy. "'I think that you alone, young man, have judged correctly in this affair,' said the commissary when Lecoq had finished reading. "'I may be mistaken, but your explanations have made me alter my opinion concerning the murderer's attitude 
while I was questioning him, which was only for a moment. He refused, obstinately refused, to answer my questions, and wouldn't even give me his name. The commissary was silent for a moment, reviewing the past circumstances in his mind, and it was in a serious tone that he eventually added, We are, I feel convinced, in presence of one of those mysterious crimes, the causes of which are beyond the reach of human sagacity. This strikes me as being one of those enigmatical cases which human justice never can reach. Lecoq made no audible rejoinder, but he smiled to himself and thought, We will see about that. End of section 8